Hi, welcome back. I'm Cal and this is Lena. Say hi, Lena. Hi, Cal. Yes, and this is Reason Me This. Yes, this is Reason Me This. Welcome to another episode um, on our Free Will series. This is our third episode and we're very excited for this episode. Um, we're going to be talking about serial killers and, and stuff. The number of times I've said serial killer in this uh, series so far, and I haven't even really talked about them, is, is amazing. Okay. Um, anyway, last episode, we um, talked about limited rational capacity, and we talked about children and even adults, like Britney Spears. Um, it's a way of conveying this idea of um, limited control, and uh, as we talked about, control is one of the components of free will. So... Something that I wanted to mention at the beginning of this episode is, like, why we even care about this question of free will? I mean, we hinted at this um, in the first episode, but I, I wanted to talk about that a little more, you know, as we get in, get into it, yeah. Um, <laughs> I hate myself. Okay. Um, we tend to live with this feeling that we're responsible for our choices, right? That's why we feel guilty. Um, I felt like this kind of idea is good and bad, right? Good in the sense that it seems that if we work hard enough, we can get a job promotion, right? We can get the grade we want or even, you know, like attract the attention of a special someone. Y'all know what I'm saying. Anyway, um, but, you know, there's an idea that we have control over what happens in our lives. And that can be a good thing. It can, you know, it feels good kind of like it gives us hope you know and stuff but before I get too cliche because I'm very good at doing that um I'll move on but there are also other cases right that might not work out so well for us you know perhaps we like fail a class or we don't get promoted or something you know worse we might even commit a like a crime or act maliciously towards somebody we love um so in this case we are responsible for our actions and if um and if so, there are punitive repercussions. So free will, free will is a kind of double-edged sword um, in that sense. Like sometimes not being responsible for bad things can, well, obviously be good. But then being responsible, not being responsible for good things can, well, kind of suck, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like that's kind of the problem, right? I think the first time we got super heated talking about free will, the argument came down to accountability, if we deny the existence of free will, or if we take on this sort of like deterministic view of the world, then we can't really hold people accountable for their actions. And that seems like a very dangerous concept. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, we'll get into the idea of determinism really soon. Um, so I guess you actually led us perfectly to, to just, you know, getting started. But if it's okay... I did want to start off by mentioning, like, why this topic is really important to me. Um, so is that all right if I just take a second make it about me? Yes, take it away, Lena. Thank you, Cal. So um, if you know me, you know um, I want to be a death row defense attorney. And um, I get a lot of people, like, whose immediate response is, why would you ever want to do that? Um and I think most of the time it comes down to this for me. Um, I don't think people have much, if any, control um, over their actions. 
and just be- and because of that, I-, I don't really think we can blame people for what they do. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty surprised when I first heard that you wanted to follow like that co- career path. And originally, I assumed like the most normal reasoning possible that like, okay, maybe like the amount of people on death row who are falsely incarcerated or like falsely accused, you know, they don't deserve to be there. And also, mm-hmm. I, I know that like black and indigenous communities are disproportionately prosecuted and imprisoned for crimes and put on death row. And those are all like great reasons for like wanting to defend those communities. But I mean, I was pretty surprised when you said that the reason you want to fight on behalf of death row inmates isn't necessarily that but that you'd even want to fight for people who had done terrible things like serial killers i mean i guess someone has to defend them but i never really considered that someone would like go into law with that intent you know okay i mean it's it's i see where you're coming from and i definitely think it's reasonable um but at the same time you said why would you ever defend terrible actions um something along those lines but the thing is i don't think um i think it's interesting because you made that distinction but i don't think terrible actions mean like equals terrible person you know um i think that's why i want to do it but anyway my point is i feel like the surprise that comes along with that kind of response um is is rooted in a built-in assumption that people are in control of their actions so it's like it's nearly impossible to sympathize with murderers and rapists and abusers if you fundamentally believe that people have free will yeah i'd say pretty much no one has sympathy for them myself included okay so let me tell you like a little bit more about where i'm coming from um also to anybody listening like cal and i have had this conversation thousands of times i don't expect to change her opinion but it's it's definitely i i have seen her come a long way um so i'm i just i hope if i keep reiterating these things to her maybe maybe one day she'll share my view or or come closer come to the dark side anyway never never okay um so there is um, a widely accepted view in psychology that our behavior is, it's like influenced by roughly 50% of our genes and, and like 50% of our environments, right? So, okay, the argument here is because we don't choose our genes and we don't choose our upbringings, right? Our environments, um, whether it's like where we grow up, who raises us, um, who surrounds us, it, it seems that we lack a choice um, we lack really any choice in, in very crucial parts of our lives. Um, so actually, there's a, a similar argument put forward by Galen Strawson. And he basically um, explains, and Galen Strawson's a philosopher, by the way. Um, he basically explains that we can't be truly morally responsible for our action because we can't be truly responsible for the way we are. So we mentioned, you know, from a psychological perspective that genes and environments make us the way we are. They make us who we are. Um, But if if we can't control genes and environments, we can't control the way we are. Um, So, like, if what we do is dependent on the way we are and we aren't morally responsible for the way we are, 
then it seems that we can't be morally responsible for what we do. Um, so that's his perspective, as I understand it, and it corresponds um, with the viewpoint of a lot of modern um, psychologists and, um, frankly, my own perspective as well. So, Yeah, and I mean, I understand that. It makes sense, and I agree to a certain extent. Yeah, like people suffer from, for example, mental illnesses, which run in their family. That's something that's obviously out of our control. And our environments lie out of our control as well. You don't get to choose how rich your parents are, what race you are, what schools you get sent to as a kid. All of this is stuff that's out of our control. And that's why understanding someone's story is so important in life. And that's why I also, you know, oppose the death penalty because we should have empathy for people based on what they've gone through. However, while understanding what makes someone who they are is definitely an important component to the story, I'm hesitant to extend that to moral responsibility. At the end of the day, like, I still believe that people are capable of making choices. And as an adult, if you're doing something immoral, you know what you're doing is wrong and you can choose not to do it. That's, That's my fundamental belief. I feel like we have very different views because the way I look at it is like if you're if you're looking at a lot of empirical research, right? There's a, a direct correlation, and sometimes we can even um, infer causation um, between genes and environments and behavior. Um, so we see, for example, in twin studies where um, you know the twins are like genetically identical. Um, we see such similar behavior and usually the twins are in the same environment as well. So you see extremely um, similar behavior. And, you know, somebody might say, well, why isn't it identical, right? If um, genes and um, environment um, are completely responsible for um, the way we behave. And actually those minor differences in behavior we see in a lot of twins are can be attributed to minor differences in, in their environments, right? Um, and even minor differences in their genes as a result of their environment. So there are cases where your environment can um, uh, impact your genes, you know, uh, in terms of epigenetics. Um, so I just, I guess I don't understand why that isn't enough to show that there really isn't much outside of that. It's like, we, we've talked about how you can't impact, you can't control your genes and you can't control your environment. And we have a lot of research that shows that our behavior literally comes from that and you don't you know I've, I've, i'm not gonna keep repeating myself but i i just kind of want to just know a little bit more about why that isn't sufficient okay yeah i i think like the distinction to me is that i i don't think that like who you are or what kind of person you are fundamentally is like equal to like what you do and let me explain that for a second so obviously i know that your genes and your environment impact what kind of person you are um Mm -hmm. for example you know you might grow up in a certain environment that makes you someone with a really angry temperament and a really bad temper um but in a given moment even with that angry temperament you can choose like you know not to punch the guy in front of you that that's what i'm saying like you you have your personality which is made up of all those factors that you talked about but i think there's a distinction between like what kind of person you are and like 
and moment-to-moment choices. I, I guess we just have fundamentally different views on that. I, I can't separate the two. I, I can't separate action from who you are. I think everything you do is rooted in, in who you are. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think we'll just have to disagree about that. I would like For to now. clarify... Uh, we'll see <laughs> For, okay I would really like to clarify something here though um when I when I say that people can control their actions I am not taking this sort of like conservative like you are the master of your own life kind of view okay one time I like listened to this podcast um it was actually Joe Rogan with Ben Shapiro so we know where that go that's going but Ben Shapiro who I despise basically was going on this tangent about how like yeah like in poor black communities um people you know, are born into unfortunate situations, but, you know, they can still control the outcome of their lives. And if they just, like, worked hard enough, they could get where they needed to go. And that is not what I am saying at all. I totally understand the factors that go into someone's life. Like, like every I, everything matters. Like, your socioeconomic status, the people you're around, everything culminates and goes to, like, the general trajectory of your life. And so I'm not making that sort of, like you know, conservative, like, uh, this is America, you can do anything you put your mind to sort of, sort of point. Sorry. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm, so when we're talking about choice here, I'm not talking about like the trajectory of someone's life. I'm talking about like specific momentary choices. Let's just, yeah, clear that up. You're talking about specific momentary choices. You're saying from one moment to another, you're making these choices. But it's almost like you're... I I can't even begin to understand how you're separating the two. But it's also because I think what I do pretty much every day is learn about how our genes and environment impact our behavior entirely. So maybe it would be easier for me to, to be able to separate the two. But I mean, I'm just thinking about like how a lot of... For example, I I mean, this is kind of like a mini tangent, but like a lot of childhood trauma, right? And a lot of um, developmental sort of um, deficits or something can be traced to either brain abnormalities or, I mean, I mentioned like childhood trauma. So it it seems to me from one moment to another, these things... um, still impact your action you know what I'm saying I mean I'm kind of the what the way I'm picturing what you're saying is like you're saying okay what what I whether I pick up this glass of water that's next to me right now um is not impacted by my childhood trauma and it's not really impacted by um you know my brain composition or whatever but I also think that's kind of undermining um our our neural mechanisms a little bit perhaps that's kind of due to a lack of understanding and i'm sorry this if this sounds a little arrogant um of how intricate our brains are and how interrelated everything are is and i i don't even think it's just you i think we can't fully understand how our brain operates and how it leads to um sort of behavioral outputs because we don't fully understand the brain yet so 
but we have enough information to know that um, a lot of what we do is rooted in sort of neural connections and stuff. We know one neuron firing to another and how fast it's firing. And, you know, basically what I'm trying to say is you're, say, you're saying that even if all of that were to be true and if it was proven, and I'll let, I'll let this go after that, you would still think that from moment to moment, your actions are not directly influenced by things out of your control entirely influenced right so not it i i would say that it's not 100 percent factors out of your control yes okay um so weird to me because okay okay lena let's <laughs> wait what one more thing one more thing okay just one more thing um, so something that you mentioned to me once, this, this is, don't worry, podcast related, is you mentioned to me once, okay, Lena, so what, um, what would it mean? Cause, cause, um, you know how I feel about prison, um, um, our modern day, like criminal justice system. I mean, and you know how I feel about prison abolition and everything. I mean, I'm for it. I'm for rehabilitative justice. But you once asked me, you were like, what would it look like to have um, a world without prison systems, right? Um, and and you you said, you know, what if, and, and I think my response, sorry, um, was that I think it would be um, sort of, prioritizing a lot of mental health institutions and then you said well what if somebody is maybe um committing a crime but also not wanting to or not consenting to um being in a mental health institution right and then you mentioned how um at one point because i said there are and and i understand sorry what i'm about to say is a little controversial but there are modern day developments in behavioral neuroscience where we see um, you can do gene knock-ins and gene knockouts where um, perhaps you can change, um, you know, um, sort of, I mean, I, I understand I'm like sort of treading dangerous territory right now, but you can change sort of predispositions of people. And in, in extreme cases, that might be helpful. Um, but you mentioned, you know, that kind of rehabilitation, if you're changing people's, um, if, if you're changing people's uh, genes and stuff, you mentioned something about um, personal identity and if basically the consequence of such rehabilitation would mean death. And I don't know if you remember that conversation, but do you remember what I'm saying at all? Yes, I do. I'm looking at it in our notes right now. Um, <laughs> um, so yes, you said that there's this TMS technology where, you know, like, I'm not going to get into the science because uh, I am not a STEM major. Well, okay, wait, may I interrupt here? Sorry, because TMS is very important to the gene knock-in and knock-out thing. So TMS, Kyle's going to kill me after this episode. He's going to be like, Lena... I'm doing a philosophy podcast with you. We're not talking about behavioral neuroscience, but it, 
TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which basically means it can temporarily shut off parts of your brain. And I was trying to say using these kind of new developments, perhaps we can alter um, psychology and thus alter behaviors of people. And I, I, I just remember I was really intrigued by your response. Yes, I remember. Yes. Okay, so mm-hmm. we're talking about technology that alters psychology, which in turn would alter behavior. Um, and what I said to that is, okay, but let's take a serial killer who doesn't feel remorse for their actions, who likes the way they are, and who doesn't want their psychology to be altered. Do you have consent to alter their psychology against their will? And my, and let me follow up with that, is there is this Star Trek episode, there is this Star Trek episode where these two guys like get fused into like one guy okay like two psychologies in one person um and i remember the captain is like okay we have the technology to unfuse them you know let's unfuse them and they drag this guy away to unfuse the psychologies and as he's being dragged away he's screaming no don't kill me and that's something I find so interesting and that's what I want to Mm -hmm. talk about with this like altering of psychology is like okay say you can alter a serial killer's psychology if you don't consent if they don't consent to that I mean like how is that different from the death penalty aren't you just isn't isn't that kind of like murder yes um um wait no (laughs) that's not what I'm saying I I don't exactly I have not formed a um you know a fully thought out response to that but I found that so interesting because I mean if you you would have to sort of take on a um brain theory of personal identity right where you're saying because if you'd be altering um your um genes or something your psychology psychology, but but you know from like um a physical you know um You'd be altering your brain chemistry, maybe, or you'd be altering genes or whatever, any anything like that. And if, if you think, um, if you take a, sorry, if you take a psychological perspective of personal identity, that's better. Um, then it seems that you would have to say that changing people in that way might mean death. Um, and also, um, if some if some people don't, can, like, the idea of consent, right, for um, rehabilitation is not the only thing that's sort of applicable here because we talk about implications on free will but or of rejecting free will. Um, what does consent even look like if we reject the existence of free will, right? Not only consent for rehabilitation but consent for everything. Me consenting to doing this podcast with you like if I if I don't have free will, what does that even mean? Are you coercing me into do this? Into doing this? <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, I mean that's very interesting. I think like re- as I said, like rejecting the existence of free will is such a shift in worldview. And consent is one of those things that we that might you know end up being an illusion. You know, if we if we reject free will then culpability is an illusion and consent is an illusion and praise and blame and and being a good or bad person and all of these things are illusions. Um, so, I mean, I think that's why I'm so hesitant to agree with your perspective. But um, 
since we're since we're back on the topic of free will, um, do you want to talk about determinism? Yes, yes. Let's get into that. I swear to God, every single time I say get into that, I'm just like I dojo's in my head. I'm like, get into it. Get into oh, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't ever do that again. Um. <laughs> so, Cal, as sad as I am about this, I take it that. The psychological viewpoint is not as convincing to you as it is to me. Um, I, I'll never understand it, but whatever. I I will move on. But let me appeal to your philosophical nature. Um, so let's talk about determinism, um, which is one of the main arguments against free will. And, and it's really interesting, right? So it's this idea that everything that happens is caused by a prior event. It's, re- it's this idea that if everything we do is set in stone before it happens, then we seem to lack the power to act in a way other than the one that has already been prescribed, right? Like if we accept that everything has a pre- predetermined cause, um, it's difficult to see how we can act freely. Um, oh, 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 take for example, um, and this is for my fellow Mindhunter watchers, um, aka Cal. <laughs> um <laughs> The actions um, of Ed Kemper, um, you know, we can trace his lust um, for, for really brutal acts like raping and, and mutilating women um, who look like his mother to the pleasure um, he received from killing his mother, his mother and, um, and humiliating her, her, of course. You, you said that with such, with such uh, classy intonation. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Okay, I mean, like, yes, let, let's just be clear. He literally assaulted his victims' decapitated heads, including his own mother's, and then he threw her tongue in the garbage disposal. Thank you, Cal, for that vivid description. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to mention, you know, Ed's mother had verbally abused him his entire life. Um, so, like, I think at the very end, he explained that he, um, he did everything he did so she could finally shut up he literally he said that um you know so it's it's a bit you know his actions are kind of symbolic um but anyway we we can trace um ed's behavior to the way ed's mother treated him and she would continuously you know nag and ostracize him which we can then trace to his mother's bad relationships with men and and so on Uh, um so it seems that if there's, um, like, from a deterministic framework, um, if there's, if there exists a never-ending, like, backward progression of causes, it seems that things are just endlessly determined by other things. And I, I think Ed Kemper's um, kind of life uh, or the trajectory of, of, of how his life went is a good example of this. I mean, I also found Ed's case really interesting. I think we argued about this. Um, mostly because his actions are just so like insanely disproportionate to anything he suffered in childhood. I, I just can't accept the argument that he didn't freely choose to do what he did. But before you before you jump in here, let me just let me just keep going. Um, there is a case. Wait, how did you know I was gonna jump in? Yeah. I... Wait, can I say something? No. Can I say something? Oh my Please. god. Okay, fine. Okay, listen. Listen, don't you Loki think that Ed had a thing for Holden? Um, 
Tell me I'm wrong. Like, maybe, like, a man crush. Like, man crush Monday, you know? Yeah, like, do you think if Ed had met Holden earlier in his life and they became best friends, do you think Ed Kemper could have been defending... Well, I mean, Holden wasn't exactly defending. But do you think, like, they could have... He could have been in Holden's place, you know? Um, I, I, I don't know. Well, no. I think that's um, a... Yeah, sorry. It's it's fine. It's okay, Lena. They okay. have they Anyways. have such a, they have such an amazing connection. I just sensed it. Except when he gave Holden that like heart attack. Anyway, okay, you can keep going. Anyways, <laughs> there. Okay, when we talk about determinism, there is a case that I personally thought of, which is um, Richard Ramirez, who was also called the Night Stalker. Um, he terrorized California by breaking into houses and assaulting and murdering the women inside them. When you look into his childhood, though, it's it's really telling. His yeah. father was an yeah, it is yeah. His father was an alcoholic who abused his wife and kids. What's actually more interesting than that, though, is Richard's older cousin served in Vietnam and then sexually assaulted and murdered civilian women during his military service. He then took pictures of himself posing with their heads and when Richard was just a kid his cousin showed him those pictures and encouraged him to explore his own violent tendencies so not only was there the mental illness that clearly ran in the family which is visible in his dad and his cousin but he was also exposed to abuse from his father and and he was exposed to a lot of eroticized violence from his cousin which definitely shaped his worldview and we can also talk about how he was like an avid user of LSD, which, I mean, we can speculate about that, but it, it could have further impacted his brain and, and all of that jazz. Um, and while there's absolutely like no excuse for the disgusting crimes that like Ramirez committed, it's also unsurprising, you know, how he turned out after his upbringing. Honestly, I think R- Ramirez is an example of, of how our choices are limited by our, our genes and biology. Thank, thank you for bringing that up, by the way. Um, but you mentioned that you think Ed's behavior is insanely disproportionate to what he experienced growing up. But also, like, I think you have to, you're, you're underestimating the importance of attachment in childhood to, to the development of empathy, right? Like, Ed didn't have that secure attachment. and, and like yeah, verbal abuse is definitely not the same as murder. Um, I think you you could you'd argue that. Um, but I don't think I'm making this claim that the cause even has to be proportionate to the behavior. Um, now, okay, somebody might say that there are plenty of people with bad genes and environments who don't do bad things, but I I think it comes down to the configuration of genes and environments like how everything fits in together I guess is what I'm trying to say um it it seems like um with the perfectly imperfect set of genes and environmental conditions you can end up with an Ed Kemper or a Richard Ramirez so I mean are you saying that anybody with the right configuration could be a serial killer yeah yeah, I think I am saying that. Okay. I mean, I can see why you would say that, but doesn't that ex- I I mean, doesn't that assume that the world is deterministic? I mean, what if I don't believe that? Spoiler alert, I don't. Um 
And I, and I don't think that there is necessarily a determined reason for every single one of my choices other than the fact that like I want to do X at that moment. What about then? Okay, so I think you step into a trap then. Um, but it is a really good point to bring up. Because, okay, if you, if you um, say that the world is not deterministic, you're talking about indeterminism, right? And indeterminism is this idea that if our actions are, are never determined, right, and they just occur entirely randomly, basically, right, because they can't be determined by anything, then we still can't ne- can ever act freely, right? Okay, so let me, like, spell this out a little bit more. Um, if our actions are not determined by prior events, then we ourselves can't determine the actions we perform. So if we can't determine the actions we commit, we still don't really... We, we still don't act freely. Um, okay. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I think you're trying to put me into this indeterministic box, though. And, th- and that's not what I'm saying. So I'm not saying that everything is random. And I'm also not saying that everything is determined. I'm sort of in between. And I think that I can make choices, period. That's all I'm saying that I can make choices. And I think I really like this analogy um, for like a serial killer or a murderer or something of comparing a serial killer to a gun. Um, So your biology makes you a gun and your environment loads the gun, but you choose whether or not to pull the trigger. You can't control the fact that you're a gun or even that you're a loaded gun, but you can choose not to pull the trigger. I'm not sure that argument is logically sound exactly just because okay let me clarify something do you think you are composed of your environments and genes yes (laughs) I sense the hesitation anyway okay okay I mean I, I think you know where this is going if you are your environment plus genes and you are pulling the trigger then the trigger is being pulled by your environment and your genes but as we said you can't control your environments and your genes and you agreed um, with me on this then you you can't control what pulls the trigger so it doesn't make sense to me that you would conclude that you can pull the trigger Yeah, okay, so I think the problem is this, and I think we, like, broached this earlier where I said that, like, you aren't your actions. So I think that your environment and your genes shape you, but I don't think that your environment plus genes equal you, like a mathematical relationship. And I don't think that it's a transitive relationship, like environment plus genes equals you equals your actions. I think that's such an oversimplification simplification and making it like a numerical identical mathematical relationship like that is just is just oversimplifying it and I think it's a more complicated relationship than that okay so I understand where you're coming from but that that just makes me wonder if you don't if you think it's um there's more to it is what you're saying really um, what else makes you who you are if it isn't your genes and environment? Like, I'm, I'm really genuinely asking. Um, do you have uh, an answer to that? Or are you... 
I I don't think I have like a specific answer for that. I believe in maybe this is a metaphysical question. Maybe this is a religious question, but I I think I believe in some other aspect of personhood outside of simply just genes and environment. But I think I that I think that's somewhere we're just going to have to disagree on. Moving on. Let's get back to our serial killers. And I, I swear <laughs> to God, I, it's just so weird me saying that all the time. Um, but, you know, I, I feel that we've adequately shown that environments and genetic influences have a huge impact on, on our behaviors, right? Like we've talked about twin studies. I've briefly mentioned the idea of um, different technologies that impact our behaviors. Um, and I think we'll be seeing that even more in the next couple of years or decades. Um, but, you know, perhaps I think all of this shows that maybe we should rethink our beliefs about moral responsibility, right? If, if we were to sort of accept this view that I, that I just illustrated. Yeah, I mean, if, if we accept your view, then we do have to rethink our beliefs about moral responsibility. Um, I think like part of what bugs me about your view on murders um, is that you you I mean you just have so much sympathy for them and I think part of what has always like you know nagged at me is is that it seems like you're not giving enough compassion to the victims and their families I mean like don't they deserve some kind of closure or like don't they deserve to see the person responsible for their pain punished two things kind of stand out to me with what you said you just said deserve and punish and I don't know I from my perspective I can't even understand how punishment is justified um and, and praise by the way but also deserve like what does it mean to deserve something if you aren't morally responsible so I think again because we disagree on we have such fundamental views on this it I almost feel like sometimes we're talking past each other, but still, I, I, I want to engage with you on this topic. But um, just to respond a little bit to what you said about the victims and stuff, I do understand. And I think it's about, it's not really about having to pick and choose. I think it's just expanding that empathy um, to a, a, another um, marginalized population. Um, so like, you know, I do understand, but also on the flip side, I think of capital cases, right? Um, I, I, I think they're absolutely, it's funny, I think they're morally abhorrent. Um, um, just because I don't see how any of us have the right to de- deprive somebody of a life. And and I know you don't agree with this, of course. Um, but, you know, in the cases of serial killers, it's, it's kind of ironic because it's exactly what they do. They deprive their victims of their lives, but state-sanctioned murder, to me, isn't much better than the actions of, of um, these criminals. It's, it's kind of an eye-for-an-eye mentality that seems so counterintuitive, you know? I think I'm, like, completely with you on this, and this is, like, one of the mm-hmm. few things we actually agree on. Um, I think that capital punishment is is wrong, and that, like, we don't we don't have the right to decide between someone's life or death, but... What do you think about life sentences? Okay, so I'm saying like as opposed to, to capital push, punishment? Yeah. Um, okay, so I do think life sentences are more complicated. And 
Okay, this is a radical view, and I might have hinted at this a little earlier, I kind of forgot. But any form of incarceration seems backwards to me. Um, like, um, I talk to you a lot about this, but I prefer the approach of rehabilitative justice, which is pretty much the like the reimagination of our pr- prison system today. Really, it, it means abolish it, abolishing this system. Um, and and if you're interested in this idea, by the way, and you're listening to this, I I would highly recommend the the work of uh, Julia Para, um, just for anybody who's interested in rehabilitative justice. Um, but I, I want to go back to what I was saying. I want to say that it's it's extremely difficult for people to grapple with the idea of prison abolition today because we've never actually created a system that works, one that's centered around rehabilitation, right? I I don't know exactly what a rehabilitative system looks like, but I do think it's something um, like mental health experts, social workers, and academic um, academic experts being at the forefront. I, I think the idea of rehabilitation is like a long term solution. Whereas prisons, uh, and really just any punitive systems, it, it creates cyclic issues, right? And they even say this in parenting, like punishment doesn't really seem to work. Um, it seems to make things worse. But anyway, it seems that um, social issues, like, you know, whether it's maladaptive behaviors, psychological disorders, and um, intergenerational trauma, if you're perpetuating these, these kind of systems, um, um, this prison system more specifically, these, these issues aren't, aren't addressed. Um, and, and I think when we look at any one individual with any kind of maladaptive behavior, we're wired to think it's a personal problem. But there's, um, so I took a sociology class last year, um, and I, I really liked it. But um, there's this idea of sociological imagination by C. Wright Mills. Um, I think I said that right. Um, that personal problems are literally the other side uh, of public problems. So, I mean, it's not literally, but um, basically what this means is that maladaptive behavior uh, behavior of one individual actually represents a dysfunctioning system um, that must be oppressed by the state. So it's interesting to get into this, the sort of applications of these kind of views, because we kind of view, I mean, we agree on the applications, but we don't a kind of agree fundamentally on free will um yeah no i think um the system lacks compassion and it lacks understanding because i mean it's it's about power and and obviously it's it just lacks empathy um but i think that while while taking people's histories into account is is such an important part of the discussion, I also think that's like a different thing than flat out denying the existence of moral responsibility. What do you think? Okay, so yeah, that's a huge question. Um, this idea of how are we supposed to reconcile free will with morality? And it keeps coming up. Um, so if our genes and our environments make it so that we aren't able to control our actions, um, then it doesn't seem like you can decide um, whether to act morally or not. And it, and it's actually funny because if we can't choose to act morally, then what's the point of social change that strives to support moral action? It seems kind of like a futile effort. Um, I think that's where it's important to stop and recognize that while we can't always choose to act morally, we can create environments that increase moral action. So let me continue here because I know it's kind of like, how do you create an environment if you don't know that? But um, 
Cal offered some really great examples of limitations on free will in the last episode. You know, she said that throughout our lives, we have different paths and um, they forked other different paths. And with every single path we choose, we have less and less choices. So even if our choices become more and more limited with each path we choose, they still exist. And, and I think you agree with this. If the limited options we have are viable options, then it is more likely that the choices they have um, or, or the choices we have will be more in alignment with mo moral action. So, okay, let me let me kind of provide an example here. If I have enough money to buy myself dinner and I'm, I'm not a kleptomaniac, then it is probably unlikely that I will steal food for dinner, right? Um, however, there are, there are also times where we don't seem to have viable options. Um, like, you know, the, the Netflix um, series like that everybody was talking about, Squid Games? Yes. <laughs> yes? Okay, cool, cool. Also, I was like, are you familiar with Squid Games? It's like, Lena, yes, I'm familiar with Squid Games. <laughs> but anyway, you know, in, in the show, there's this idea that all the characters have willingly chosen to enter this death match. Um, but like, I think this is a prime example of a, a mere just illusion of choice. You know, in the show, these people are struggling with gambling addictions, um, debt, child custody issues and you know sick family members and dealing with immigration battles and stuff so like they're at a point where they just need to make ends meet or, or, or you know so to them it doesn't really feel like they had much of a choice it's like uh starve or risk death <laughs> have your mother die uh because you can't afford her health care or risk death um i don't know and and i think the show is is and i won't get too off topic here but the show is really an allegory for modern um capitalist society right there's there's an illusion of choice in squid games but also uh, the real world yeah and i think actually this is a really great example to demonstrate like how we i don't know i think we we have different opinions partially based on how we define free will i mean to me having any choice is free will being able to make any choice mm -hmm. is free will um so so in the Squid Games, like I, I say that they have free choice because they could have chosen not to go to the game. But I also recognize that like their choices are not viable. And I agree that in a capitalist society, like I think we have free will because we can make choices. But I also think it's a huge systemic issue that we don't have viable choices and that we should have more viable options. We, we might have a set of limited options at any given moment. But to really claim that we're acting freely, I, I do think to really hold people accountable for their actions, there must be a choice that, that does feel viable. And I mean, I look at free will as you kind of, to really, again, to, to say that we have, to hold somebody accountable is a pretty serious thing, right? And, and to say that we're acting freely. There's this idea, for me at least, I, I don't think partial choice, especially cho choice that isn't viable, I can't, I don't even view it as a choice. Um, so, yeah. Um. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. I think, like, if you, if you're thinking about the question of whether free will exists, you have to, you have to decide if you think choice is sufficient for free will or if you think that we need viable choice. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that, that that's what our disagreement boils down to. 
Um, and I don't know if we really changed either of our views. Um, no, it's it's fine though. But I think like even though like we didn't change our views, like it's it's down to a, a, a how we define yeah. the necessary conditions for free will. But at the end of the day, like if you understand all the different aspects and the arguments, we come to a pretty similar worldview anyways. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's good that we, and I, we'll talk about, you know, what kind of worldview is best to have, you know, we'll take a, a utilitarian approach um, about what's best to do um, next episode. Next time we'll uh, talk more about the best approach to life. Um with what we understand about free will and whether or not uh, it's best to at least act um, and live your life according to uh, um, a belief that um, free will exists. So thank you very much and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.